Uh, Chris, you know, the reason that we're starting this, welcome. Um, Thanks for having me, Drew. Yeah, it's fun to finally be, uh, you know, you and I talk a lot, but it's fun to finally be in a face-to-face -face situation where we can have a conversation safely distanced, but also sort of interact on this level like we used to be able to more frequently. So thanks for asking me and thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, it's been about nine months since we've been able long to time. do something like this. Too long. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the whole purpose of this uh, project is to spread both awareness for uh, consumers and parents, uh, possibly uh, legislative people that we have to work with because we are a legislative profession. And, and so uh, those issues can affect access for patients uh, and they need to be aware of kind of how that can, can go against them or for them. So um, with regards to that, I think I'd like to start off. What, how would you define optometry and its role within the healthcare for people on a regular basis? You know, Drew, when we think about uh, the patients that we serve, we're a, we're a primary care provider of eye care services. And so, you know, as you know, and when we talk to our patients all the time, we're looking for not just can you see well, but also do you have other diseases that are going to prevent you from seeing well in the future? But also could be an indicator that there's other systemic diseases going on that uh, we can see when we look inside of their eyes. And so um, we're kind of the first stop and often the second and third stop for patients related to eye care services in communities, not just in big towns, but communities across the states uh, and in big and small communities as well. So I think I think the bottom line is that um, that we have training and knowledge and education that allows us to serve most patients with most vision problems and most ocular health problems most of the time. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. For this week's episode, what I wanted to do was promote a new podcast called Beyond 2020 that is hosted by Dr. Drew Bateman, who's heard on our podcast uh, multiple times. And Drew has kind of worked with the NOA to start this podcast called Beyond 2020 that um, focuses both from a doctor's perspective, but also to our patients. Uh, and it's a really great resource for us to be able to share with our patients if, we, if we're talking about, if he's talking about different things that are, is pertinent to their care in particular, but also to, to listen to for, to kind of think about how we might uh, approach just different media outlets with conversations. And so it's a, it's a, it was a lot of fun to do this podcast with him. And so while you're listening to this introduction and his first podcast for from Beyond 2020 with Dr. Drew Bateman, um, I would recommend going over and subscribing to their podcast so that you can keep a, an eye on what those updates are. As always, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of Cooper Vision's Biofinity Torque. The Biofinity Torque Multifocal combines that torque design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal Lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. 
Check out the show notes and link to CooperVision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. So, you know, some people will um, refer to us as a gateway uh, for healthcare. Can you kind of get into any specifics in terms of how that works with, with regards to our engagement with general practitioners for patients and helping coordinate things? Well, when you think about, um, you know, just our, our day-to-day practices, right? And, you know, you have a patient that comes in, they have blurry vision. And their first thing they're thinking of is, I must need glasses. And so that's a common uh, reason that somebody might come into our practice, but we might see that there are changes inside of their eyes or their fluctuation in their vision that could indicate something like diabetes. And so that's really the gateway into healthcare services. Often because we tend not to um, be quite as threatening perhaps, uh, and by threatening, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that patients may perceive us as being an easy entry into healthcare. There's tons of opportunity to do things that you and I do all the time. Like, okay, well, when do we start screening patients for high blood pressure? And when do we start screening them for diabetes? And when do we start having conversations with them about their vaccinations? So often, you know, when we're serving communities like Omaha and Lincoln, depending on where we're serving and the patient population we're serving, we may have patients that don't have, aren't continually seeing a primary care provider. And so, uh, so we might be that only point of contact to be like, hey, you know, have you guys gotten, have you thought about these vaccinations? Have you thought about, you know, your blood pressure today was a little bit high. And, um, and so it's probably wise at your age that we get you coordinated with a primary care provider to, to evaluate that. And then, uh, so I think in that way, we were non-threatening as the entry point, but then we become a gateway because we can connect patients with physicians, other physicians that we trust, uh, that we work in our communities with. Yeah, I think that's a, I think, do you think that's a good point, especially in a state like Nebraska? So even beyond Lincoln and Omaha, uh, when you get out into those rural communities, you know, one of the things that affects people uh, in terms of their own perception is their vision. So you may have somebody who never goes to the doctor, but their vision starts to deteriorate. So they do finally go into their optometrist and they may be in a rural community that may or may not have a primary care physician. And that optometrist might be the first one to see them in quite a while from any kind of a healthcare standpoint. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, the coordination of that care oftentimes, I mean, you, you emailed me just the other day about a dentist in your community asking about uh, a patient that is a mutual patient of yours who uh, has dry mouth and is getting, I think it was gingivitis and cold sores. And, um, and they didn't call the primary care physician. They didn't call, you know, the, the patient's rheumatologist. They called you because they were, they were considering, well, can I put this patient on a medication that increases salivation? I know one of the potential side effects of that could be ocular in nature. Um, and oh, by the way, that uh, other side effects that we get is that we may have more tears to our eyes, which could be a good thing if that patient's also suffering from dry. So he was, he was kind of looking to you already, and we see this all the time, but looking to you already for your insight about you know, what do we do and what can I do in this situation to help this patient? And if I do this to help this patient here, is it also something that you would think of would, would not be a problem for that patient other places? So I think that, that um, just kind of speaks to that entire uh, connection, not just as the primary entry point for patients, 
but also uh, a um, a uh, bouncing and a sounding ground and a co- consultation for other physicians in our community. Sure, sure. So we, we obviously have kind of mentioned some systemic diseases and things like that that, that um, tend to be more age-related and in terms of how they affect people. But um, can you comment also from a, a children's standpoint how optometry fits as a role, both learning, health-related for those, those kiddos, and how we, can, how we interact with pediatricians on a regular basis too? You know, one of the things that is a real challenge is that when, and you know this, is, is that you're trying to, um, I, think, I think the schools and I think parents and pediatricians are trying to dole out services uh, in, in a way that is not going to overwhelm a system. And in doing so, they're, they're really well-intentioned to try to say, okay, well, we want to make sure that we're not sending patients unnecessarily for eye exams or for other examinations. And so they, they, they'll try to screen patients. And so, um, so what we really see is that in that, um, the people who are screening patients are very well-intentioned, but they could have a wide variety of different backgrounds and skill sets. And, um, and what was really interesting, who was I, ta- was I talking to you recently? Um, no, no, I was a patient. And so um, his wife was a teacher and he has actually, he's got some background in finance and his uh, he has recently started just flipping houses, but he sees in other communities that outside of Omaha and outside of Nebraska that there are these um, uh, nonprofits that are there to help serve underserved or underprivileged kids. And, um, and so what he was saying is he wanted to start one of these nonprofits in Omaha. And I said, well, that's a great idea. I said, but you know, there's Almost every single person, even if they're outside of the gap of, of having their own health insurance uh, or having Medicare or excuse me, Medicaid, or uh, there are options and opportunities. There's all sorts of programs that exist. Um, it's probably best to just coordinate all those programs. And what, what really dawned on me, what he said was, is that, you know, in his wife's school, that the school nurses that are doing vision screenings they, it's not just that they have to, you know, check vision and there's a potential to miss a lot of other things, right? What you're checking for, obviously, as you and I know, is for nearsightedness primarily. Um, You're not really checking for teaming or tracking or accommodation or any of the binocular vision issues that we know will impede learning. But there's this other thing that I didn't really wrap my mind around is that when when they make the determination in some of these underprivileged areas, they make the determination, this kid needs to have an eye exam. That's actually a pretty um, significant thing for them to have to follow through on. Because what do they have to do? They've got to uh, tell the parent, okay, this kid needs an eye exam. Um, This is why we think they need an eye exam. And then it's on the parent to do something. But it's also, they they know, okay, well, what am I going to do if they don't get an eye exam? And what now i got to call the parent again. And what resources do I have? So it's all this sort of like headache right? Like you and I had talked about before, where it's like, well, there's stuff that just is a hassle in our practice. That's the hassle that they've got to deal with. So are there ways, and the, the Nebraska Optometric Association has those ways, those mechanisms to coordinate with school nurses and school administrators and, uh, and districts in general to say, look, these are the resources that are available. And if you have a situation where you, you have a child that is falling in the gap, We've got this, 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 and this that we have resources for. And, and there's doctors in our community that accept those resources and can provide those patients with 
free or extremely low cost options if they need intervention. And so I think that's, um, that's something that uh, is not well known um, in addition to all the other things that you and I talk about from a, from a pediatric standpoint. Um, but we've got to do a better job of that. Really, as a profession, we've got to do a better job of that. Uh, so I, that was really striking to me uh, beyond the things that you and I talk about. What do you think when you're communicating with um, pediatricians and with uh, school nurses? What do you think is really resonating when, um, when you're talking to them that, that is a hardship on them? from an eye standpoint. So yeah, I, I have actually worked with school nurses and done some CE lecturing for them in terms of the screening process and, and why they're doing the screening process. And yeah, I think you're right, the hardship part of it. They, their first comment is, well, we don't really understand what we're looking for. We don't, we don't know how to test for that. And, and most of the things that affect children are not picked up by reading that chart, as you know, reading the chart at the end of the day. They're month. not obvious, yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's the movement, it's the tracking and those kind of things. And so um, that's probably the first thing is, is just what am, what data am I collecting and what does it really mean? And, and then, like you said, the next one is, all right, how do we get them to the right space? And pediatricians, we have a great relationship with pediatricians. Um, it's, I think, still working with them to kind of uh, understand the link between learning and, and coordination of movement within the eyes and, and some of the things beyond just checking in acuity or seeing if there's a prescription need or whatnot. So that's what we run into. I think it's probably a good, this is a good opportunity though to plug the uh, Nebraska Foundation for Children's Vision yeah. as, a, as a source for uh, anybody to be able to reach out to at the Nebraska Optometric Association for um, if, if they can't help, they can at least help get pointed in the right direction as far as a resource. So. Yeah. Do you think that, um, have you seen any more like with, with Zoom and a lot of the remote learning that kids are doing right now? Are you seeing more patients with visual symptoms that are coming in? Do you, do you think that if, if that's the case, do you think that people are sort of um, linking the two yeah. or more often or, or they're still sort of missing that, that link that when you're staring at a computer at, you know, 30 centimeters all day long, there's going to be a natural fatigue that sets in that's not normal? I think, I think parents are picking up on that. They come in with that question almost some cases almost more of a fear beyond where it, where it needs to be. I mean, mm. almost every patient, it seems like comes in right now, their first thing is like, well, they're spending more time on a computer, you know? And so in a good way, I think there is an awareness of how that affects uh, strain and focus and, and headache possibilities and dry eyes and all of those with kids. So, um, you know, I, I think that's, an, that's another, another um, subject is, is kind of with these changes with COVID and, and, um, time on the computer, alternative ways to get uh, treatment or, or examination possibly, you know, what, as far as new technology mm. and, and addressing some of these challenges with COVID, what, what do you see out there as opportunities for parents um, or possibly things they maybe need to also be leery of uh, when deciding how to get their, their children or their own eyes taken care of? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's two things. I mean, first, it's sort of this conundrum when you look at the demand for near work. And as you know, when when kids are young and they're farsighted, meaning they have a, an easier time seeing far away than they do up close, they can be missed on normal screeners. And that fatigue sets in. So that's the first thing that you're trying to do is eliminate that fatigue, make sure that their eyes are able to point and track well when they are doing things at near. But you also know that the evidence, and this is one of the new things that most people don't know about, uh, but um, the evidence really has become overwhelming in terms of those near activities accelerate the progression of nearsightedness, right? Or being, making it harder for you to see far away. 
And there are interventions that are FDA approved that we can, we've integrated into our practices so that patients long-term aren't going to be as nearsighted. And the cool part about that is that, I mean, it really allows us when they're later in life, and there's two things, as you know, the first is that it allows us to have this huge flexibility. If they, if we can keep their prescription relatively low, then we have all this flexibility and options that are, that are refractive in nature, meaning glasses or contact lenses, or even surgical in nature. Uh, to correct their vision. But on top of that, they're at much lower risk. If we can keep those numbers low of nearsightedness, they're at much lower risk of things like retinal detachments, things like glaucoma, things like myopic maculopathy um, that can really last for the rest of their life, right? And they can put them at risk for vision loss for the rest of their life. So the most important reason is it allows us to, um, for most patients, it just allows us more flexibility for their correct, for their visual correction long-term, but then it also reduces their risk for other ocular disease that can impact their vision significantly. I mean, that's one thing that parents should know about. Um, and, and so it's not just about, can we make them see clearly, but it's also, can we actually slow down this progression so they don't get higher and higher and higher numbers every year? It's FDA approved. It's not, even, it's not experimental anymore. I mean, it, is, it, it works. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big one. The other one is that there's this idea that if I can get numbers for a prescription, if I can say, what are the numbers in this eye and what are the numbers in that eye, and I can, um, and I can send that information in, then that's good enough. And, and the reality is, is that you know, when, when we think about patients, we're thinking about, yes, what are the numbers in each eye, but also what's your perception of those numbers as a human? What, uh, meaning what, how do I respond to those numbers? Am I focusing too hard to get those numbers? Am I, am I, are my eyes balanced, right? Are they working together or did I, did I focus a little bit harder in one eye so that those eyes are never pointed at the same place? So there's technologies right now that are aiming to say, look, there is a barrier. The barrier is you need new glasses and the, the, it's hard to get in to see somebody because of whatever might be going on. And, um, and right now, those technologies are interesting, they're cool, but they're mostly, as you know, being um, verified with no, um, without, without uh, understanding of the clinical ramifications of what's going on. And so that's, that's I think, what's the challenge with it, is that, um, first of all, it, all the things that we had talked about before is it's not using both eyes together, but second of all, it is just getting a number for one eye and saying, here you go, and not really understanding what that's going to do and not looking at the other 30 things that we might look at during a comprehensive exam and, and assuming that all those other things are going to be normal if the numbers make sense. And so I think that's, that's a big challenge. Now, as far as an opportunity to integrate that into our care, uh, technology really allows us to expand our care, right? And so um, it allows us to serve the patients that, that we can serve but also when they aren't comfortable coming into our practices, we have a lot of new technologies to be able to have conversations like this remotely and be able to triage. You know, I, in a patient now who in the past would call me after hours, right? So I'm on call all the time. And I used to always have to say, okay, I have the option of a phone call and say, okay, I'm listening to your symptoms and things are okay. Let's maybe see you back uh, in the office on Monday. or yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. We probably need to take a look at you today to so make sure nothing else worse is going on. So I'll rush to the office and see you. 
Well, now we have the opportunity to have this sort of intermediary where the two of us are having a conversation via telehealth. I can see how you're responding. A lot of the stuff that's on the anterior or the front part of the eye and the eyelids, we can address. And, um, and then we can get a sense of how much pain is this patient in? What does the actual eye look like? It's not perfect. It's not like our microscopes that we have in our office, as you know. But, um, but it gives us a sense of, is this something I need to see on Saturday night at midnight? Or is this something that, I, that, we can, um, that we can triage and see them on Monday morning or Sunday morning, something like that? So I think that's really cool. And I also think that some of these technologies, like I was mentioning, in coordination with, uh, with a primary eye care provider, can be used to extend those services beyond the realm of, of a facility. Yeah, I think, I think an important piece of that is that, um, you know, when a, when a patient comes into, whether it's an optometrist or an ophthalmologist office or any other healthcare provider, there's the due diligence and burden of um, making sure that you're not missing something that else that could be affecting a prescription in our case. Um, and if a technology is held to the same standard of care that, that the, that the provider is held to, um, okay, then, then it's probably something that can be worked with. But if it's not held to that same standard of care, whether it's a overpowering, misfocusing, or missing something completely from the health side that's actually affecting their, their prescription, um, then it's, there's not a lot of value to it because it's, it's, it's not doing the job of what it's claiming to do. Yeah, I think that's, and, and and I think the other thing that's pretty interesting is that when, um, when we think about, I mean, you and I had the opportunity to see technologies advance really rapidly, specifically optical, optical coherence tomographies. And so like when you and I were being trained in the mid-2000s, those were just being introduced into, into clinical practice. Um, and so doctors were figuring out how to use those technologies. What does it actually mean for this disease state? And if I see this, how do I manage this disease state? And I remember seeing uh, images from the late 90s, right? So it took about 10 years to get it from uh, development stage to, to understanding it scientifically enough to integrate into clinical care and then become FDA approved so that people could have access to it. And now what's happening is that oftentimes people are mistaking this idea that something is app, that it has a technology linked to it as being something that has been validated and verified. And so I'm not saying that none of those technologies have their place, but people who understand how to utilize, how, to, how a visual system and the eye works need time to see what does this make in terms of how do we integrate this into our normal standards of care and so that we're making sure patients aren't being harmed. That's the piece that right now concerns me about some of these technologies is I want to be able to use them, but they're moving so fast uh, because they're being used to sell more of something, right? They're saying, look, I can sell you more of something. Um, And I think that's a challenge. Yeah, it kind of shuffles patients through it. There's almost a, um, oh, kind of the interest within it is, is built to provide for those sales platforms and things like that, as opposed to maybe the greater, the greater population and, and protecting and, and looking at their visual systems. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to see how it shakes up. But, you know, when you see patients on a day-to-day basis, I think the things that we've talked about today, it's very evident to your patient population that, um, that what you're doing is more than the numbers, right? When they come in to see Dr. Bateman, they are getting more than the numbers. 
And so I think the more that patients have those experiences in our practices, the more they realize that it's not just this piece of paper that has some numbers on it. It's all the other stuff that we talked about and that we looked at that we made sure was healthy. And if it wasn't, we have options to intervene with things like ocular surface disease or dry eye or allergies or glaucoma or macular degeneration. And so, um, so I think that's what's really important is we can find those numbers. But when, patient, when we're communicating effectively to patients and they understand what we're doing, then the numbers are just a piece of the entire pie. Uh, excellent. So kind of with the last few minutes here, um, can you can you kind of cover what uh, being an optometrist or the service that you might find in an optometrist in Nebraska versus perhaps another state uh, within within the U.S.? Is there is there differences that you might run into if you're a person moving to Nebraska? Um, is there something they may see differently than where they had been previously? What's it look like on a national scale compared to locally? Yeah, when we think about Nebraska, um, when you come to, to Nebraska, you can get most of your, like I said before, you can get most of your eye conditions managed with medicines and some minor procedures. Um, at where I was trained in Oklahoma, we can offer a number of, of uh, more procedures than patients have access to from us in Nebraska. So there are uh, I mean, 12 and a half years ago, I was trained to do procedures um, that I can't, that my patients can't have benefit from in Nebraska. And all the while, over that last 12 and a half years, there's been a multi multitude of other states that have integrated that scope of practice so that those patients in other states have access to, to those services from the trained providers. And so, um, so in, in general, um, things like if you have a little... Um, uh, you know, a, a little, uh, what commonly would be called a skin tag on the, on the eyelid. Those are, are never simple, but they're, they're relatively straightforward. If you have been trained and understand the risks of a procedure, the risks of, uh, complication postoperatively, um, which of course we're trained right now, we're trained all across the country to manage those risks. Um, and yet patients often won't want to go to see somebody else because that's another trip, another. So those are burdens that patients in Nebraska still have to uh, have to go through. And in other states, even right next door in Iowa, they don't have to go to those burdens. So I think uh, hopefully that that will change over time, especially as rural of a population as we are and as kind of Omaha Lincoln centered as our our surgeons 